Welcome to CPAC Today in Politics. Coming up, the federal government announces changes to COVID support programs. Temporary local lockdowns are still a possibility in the months to come. We want Canadians to know that we intend now to put in place a measure that would snap into action immediately to support workers in the event of a new local lockdown. All provinces and territories get on board with a vaccination passport for international travel. As Canadians look to start traveling again, there will be a standardized proof of vaccination certificate that, as we said, uh, we will be uh, picking up the tab for at the federal level to ensure that all provinces uh, are able to do it. And Canada will receive 2.9 million doses of the Pfizer vaccine for children once it's approved for 5 to 11-year-olds. That particular age group uh, is one that we have been looking forward to having the opportunity to have vaccine available for. We know that Health Canada received the data from Pfizer around the safety and efficacy of the vaccine for children in that age group just this week. It's Friday, October 22nd. I'm Mark Sutcliffe. Let's get right to the top political stories this morning. We're joined by Joanna Smith, the Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Canadian Press. Good morning, Joanna. Good morning, Mark. So the government has announced changes to COVID support programs. This has been an evolving file, obviously. We, we had the Canada Emergency Response Benefit that, that changed to the CRB, and now there's going to be a new benefit that's going to be in place until next May. Just walk us through what this means, and the government has put a price tag on this as well. So how much is this going to cost? So this will be about $7.4 billion through to May 2022. So Finance Minister Christian Freeland is calling this the the final pivot. Of course, um, if we've learned anything from the pandemic, it's a little hard to predict when the final pivot will be. Um, But the messaging she put forward was that, you know, the best way to help Canadians is, is a job. So I think this is a recognition that, you know, these this pandemic aid costs a lot of money for the federal government um, and that they've been signaling there would be a wind down period at some point. So, yeah, so we're over $7 billion uh, through till May. Um, so some of the, the major benefits that we've become used to throughout the pandemic are actually going to be expiring this weekend um, and are being replaced by more targeted support with some higher bars to apply for. So rather than a broad wage subsidy and emergency rent subsidy. We're going to be looking at something specifically for the tourism sector, something specifically for, um, you know, hardest hit business recovery program. Um, And businesses are going to have to show a much higher monthly revenue loss um, over a longer period of time to qualify. So that's sort of the major changes. Um, They're also letting the the major sort of Canada recovery benefit, that's the one that had replaced what was previously known as the SERB, but that's expiring this weekend. And again, being replaced by something more targeted called the Canada Worker Lockdown Benefit. And so that would be $300 a week that would go to workers who are having to take time off work specifically because their place of work is being shut down during a lockdown, which may which may pop up again over the next few months. Yeah. And and so there are a couple of things to this, Joanna, that I think are interesting. One is that it is it is a signal, perhaps, that that we're emerging from the pandemic and that things are closer to being back to normal, which which is an encouraging sign. I think the other thing for a lot of people is that they felt that uh, at least uh, more recently that 
many of the measures were were too broadly applied and that they were having an impact on the labor market and the ability for businesses to hire people and and that sort of thing. So this transition seems to be an attempt to address that, right? Exactly. I mean, we're talking about there's been $289 billion in direct support during COVID-19 pandemic, um, and then about $111 billion of that, this is the most costly aspect of it, was to the Canada Emergency Wage Subsidy. And there's there's been some talk about how that perhaps was a bit too broad. Um, businesses only had to show revenue losses over sort of this four-week qualifying period. Um, and so uh, I know the Globe Mail did some reporting that many businesses that receive this wage subsidy they might have been able to show that loss during a specific targeted period, but their revenues and profits had perhaps otherwise increased during the full year. So, so there was some controversy over that. So I think this more targeted approach um, will address some of those concerns. And, and I think it's a recognition, yeah, there's, there's, there has been labor shortages um, and there's been messaging from you know corporate Canada that let's make it easier to go to work than stay at home. Um, but at the same time, there's been also, there's a recognition, I think, that we're not completely out of this. Um, and so I kind of interesting, they've decided to keep the, the caregiving benefit, or, the, or they want to be keeping the, the caregiving benefit and, and the, sick, the Canada Recovery Sickness Benefit. They want those to remain through till next May and actually extend, extend the, the number of benefits as well, or the time they can, yeah. people can claim the benefits. All right, let's turn to international travel. And and, uh, the government has lifted the blanket advisory. I don't know how many people were aware of it or paying attention to it, but there was an advisory cautioning people against non-essential travel outside the country. It's been in place since the pandemic was declared in March of last year. Um, And at the same time, the government is also uh, putting in place a national vaccination passport for international travel, which the provinces and territories are behind as well. So bring us up to date on that. Sure. So um, the thing we learned that is that this new vaccine passport that everyone has been waiting for is something that most Canadians perhaps already have in their phones or their wallets. So what they've decided to do is instead of going for a separate federally designed vaccine passport. They're just making sure that each of the provincial passports or ones issued by territories have sort of some distinguishing features that are standardized across the country. So if you live in Newfoundland and Labrador, Nova Scotia, Quebec, Ontario, Saskatchewan, Northwest Territories, or Yukon, you actually already have this. Um, And so there's sort of a what they're calling a word mark, which is a Government of Canada logo on it, they're digital, they're, they're accordingly in line and with some international standards on what are called smart health cards. They have a QR code. Um, and so essentially, the provinces that do not already have this version on board, uh, everyone has agreed to bring some version of this that would have those features. And the feds have promised a billion dollars to help pay for that work. Okay. So uh, is, is this going to be an easier path uh, toward... Because there were a lot of concerns that with so many jurisdictions involved, this was going to be really complicated, right? Exactly. So I think, yeah, this this is just a, rather than having to, I know, you know, all these national programs um, can be really fraught. Um, and there's been lots of talk about the difficulty of linking up health systems within provinces, never mind from province to province. So this would be sort of a standardized thing. It's a QR code. It, it links to, you know, someone's name, their date of birth what type of vaccine they got and when they got it, essentially, and in which province they got it. So this is something that, you know, the government is saying the airlines will be able to easily recognize, and it's something that 
is already being recognized um, in places where people need to use a vaccine passport, passport to get into a restaurant, let's say, um, in various provincial jurisdictions. Yeah. All right, let's talk about another sign that that uh, a lot of parents have been waiting for, parents of children under 12. Um, it's it's We're not there yet, but of course, people have been waiting to hear news about the potential to vaccinate children who are 5 to 11 years old. Vaccines have been developed, and it appears as though Canada is going to receive almost 3 million doses of the Pfizer vaccine for children once it has been approved. Uh, so... They'll be ready to, to deploy those doses immediately, and almost every child in the country will, will be able to get their first dose of the vaccine shortly after it's been approved. So this, is, this would be a big step forward for a lot of Canadian families, wouldn't it? A huge step, yeah, mine included, to be honest. I mean, um, yeah. there's been a lot of talk about how this fourth wave has been a pandemic of the unvaccinated. Well, what's a big cohort of unvaccinated people and not by choice? It's children ages 5 to 11 and younger than that. And so, yeah, Pfizer-BioNTech submitted its request to Health Canada on Monday for, for this cohort. The nearly 3 million doses uh, formulated for that age group, this is actually coming out of a deal that Canada struck with Pfizer back in April, um, sort of linked in with some booster shots that Canada had ordered. Pfizer says this is being advanced, so we can, we can get it this year. So everyone's sort of uh, waiting for, for this approval. Um, there's some movement in the U.S. Uh, there's some meetings that are next week and the following week um, over over their sort of uh, submission for approval there. So it'll be interesting to watch that. It'll be interesting to see if Canada comes out first or slightly behind the United States on this. And, um, you know, I think it'll be interesting to see the messaging. Um, at the Canadian Press, one of our reporters, Melissa Kudos-Zuber, wrote an interesting story exploring how crucial the messaging will be when it comes to kids and vaccines. I think there's some some lessons to be learned from the earlier stages of the rollout. There was a lot of, you know, shifting advice, particularly over AstraZeneca. There was an impression left by the National Advisory Committee on Immunization, um, you know, rightly or wrongly, that one of the vaccines was perceived as inferior. Um, there was a lot of changing rules and eligibility requirements that, that pharmacists had to sort of keep up with. So it'll be interesting to see how they manage that this time, because I think there is there is a concern among public health officials that vaccine hesitancy may be um, a challenge that'll be slightly different in, in this cohort, um, yeah. because it is parents deciding for their kids, right? And, and we've already seen sort of challenges around vaccine hesitancy when it comes to just regular vaccines, like the measles, for example. So mm-hmm. um, I think how they manage that communication of things like side effects and, and you know, risk-benefit analysis will be, will be a, a bit delicate. Yeah. All right. Uh, Parliament resumes in uh, one month, one month from today, Joanna, and we're going to see Cabinet sworn in next week. Uh, just as we wrap up very quickly, um, any thoughts on what to expect when the Cabinet is, is announced on Tuesday? I think it's one of those things where there's what we there's things that we absolutely do know, um, and, there's, and then there's all sorts of speculation and conjecture, and, and I think it's always uh, good for us to remember just how few people actually really do know what's going on until yeah. today. Um, you know, what we do know is that the Prime Minister said he wants to stick with gender parity, and we know that he lost four female cabinet ministers, you know, and Catherine McKenna, who decided not to run again, 
and then losses by Marion Monsef, Bernadette Jordan, and Deb Schultz. So I think those are some key portfolios and, and spots in the positions to watch. Um, and then I would say conjecture uh, that is slightly more on the on the likely side rather than the out there side. There's been lots of talk about whether this is time for uh, Defence Minister Harjit Sajjan to be moved. Um, obviously, there, he's had a rough year over, you know, criticism over his handling of allegations of sexual misconduct in the Canadian Armed Forces. Um, so I think there's a sense that if there is a time, now would be the time. Um, and then, of course, Environment Minister Jonathan Wilkinson, there's a big United Climate Change, uh, United Nations Climate Change Conference uh, coming up very soon. So I think it would be a, a very short timeline for a new Environment Minister to take on, on that role. So hmm. I think he's probably staying put. And then a lot of other, a lot of other speculations running around. Yeah. All right, Joanna, thank you so much for sharing your insights today. Have a great weekend. You too. Thank you so much for having me. That's Joanna Smith, the Ottawa Bureau Chief for the Canadian Press. Liberal inflation has hit 4.4%. Now, here's what political columnists and commentators are writing about today. In the Toronto Star, Heather Schofield argues the Conservatives know rising inflation is not Justin Trudeau's fault. Schofield writes... News releases and social media statements from Conservatives all centered on one key point. Inflation running at an 18-year high is Justin Trudeau's fault. Never mind that economists have said repeatedly that the 4.4% year-over-year increase in the Consumer Price Index in September is linked mainly to production problems, supply chain issues, and a reopening of the economy. Try as one might to put the onus on the Liberals for the cause and the repair to inflationary pressure— It's a convoluted argument at best, and it doesn't lead us to solutions. In an editorial, the Toronto Sun considers the winding down of COVID protocols. The Sun writes, Learning to live with COVID-19 doesn't mean failing to protect the vulnerable, and it doesn't mean that we stop taking it seriously. But we now owe it to people to let them live their lives again, just as much as we owed it to our vulnerable to protect them from the worst outcomes of the virus. Provincial and federal COVID-19 policies need to be about moving forwards, not backwards. We owe ourselves that much. In the conversation, Louise Cockrum argues rookie MPs face unique challenges in the 44th Parliament. Cockrum writes, The hurdles include a lack of social contact with senior MPs if the House continues with hybrid sittings, increased constituency service demands, and a heightened climate of hostility toward politicians. The additional challenges rookie MPs will confront as they enter the 44th Parliament may hinder their ability to hit the ground running as they begin their responsibility to serve Canadians. Now, here's what's coming up on today's political agenda. The Prime Minister will be in private meetings. Defence Minister Harjit Sajjan will take part in the NATO Defence Minister's meeting in Brussels. And Bloc Québécois leader Yves-François Blanchette will hold a news conference in Ottawa. And that's CPAC Today in Politics for Friday, October 22nd. Tune into Primetime Politics Weekend on CPAC for coverage of all the week's events. Our podcast returns Monday morning. Have a great weekend.